welcome to the Curious Life podcast. My name is Yana Firestone. I just wanted to jump in today and say a few words before this episode goes out. It's been a little while between episodes and I really just wanted to take a moment to acknowledge what has been going on here in Australia and around the world. Originally, we were scheduled to release this episode with the gorgeous Rachel Coops, her second time on the show, actually. We were going to release this episode early last week and the images and the news and the stories that were just starting to come out of the Middle East were horrifying and I just didn't feel like it was the right moment and I wanted to give the moment the space to breathe and for all of the people who were watching on in horror like myself and for all of the families and people who have loved ones in the Middle East to focus on what is really important and the voice to parliament then happened last weekend and that was another layer of grief and sadness and trauma for so many people in our country and it just sort of seemed to be too much big important stuff going on to just kind of jump in and have fun. So I hope that in giving it a bit of space to breathe that we've all had some time to reflect and to send our thoughts and prayers to everybody affected by all of this sadness and awfulness that's happening and to spend some time doing some things that make us feel good and so while we can't change any of these terrible things that are going on I think it is important that we have conversations about it we talk to each other we make space for each other and we don't hold in any of the fears and the sadness and the grief that comes with so much of this terrible time that we're living in. But in saying that, while all of that is there and unfortunately it doesn't feel like it's going anywhere quickly, I thought maybe it's time to release this episode because the beautiful Rachel Coops is an absolute ray of life. She's, and I did say life just there, she is full of joy, hope, wisdom, experience and this was an incredible conversation for me. I just love her. There was lots of lightness, lots of fun and we did record this quite a few weeks ago now so before all of this madness and horror was unfolding. But we go deep and I hope that at least for now this is a bit of a distraction, something to get your mind chewing over something else but don't forget about all of the people who are still affected by so much in this country and in others and I certainly will not. So thanks for listening, thanks for understanding the delay and I hope you enjoy this episode and in the meantime look after yourselves, look after each other, look after your communities and I will be here listening and feeling everything that you are too. All right, here's Rach. Enjoy. 
Rachel Coops is an actor, writer and mindfulness educator. She's best known for her role in McLeod's Daughters and on Play School, which she is currently touring with. She's also recently released her new book, Paris for Beginners, a travel memoir about Rachel's study and process of growing up as an adult in Paris. We love Rachel here on the Curious Love podcast, so much so we've invited her back again. If you don't remember, go back and have a listen. Rachel was also a guest in season one. Wow, five years ago. In this episode, Rachel talks of her love affair with Paris. And Yana and Rachel really delve into what it means for a woman to come into her power in her 40s and how to seize that power. You'll enjoy this chat coming up next. Well, I am so excited to welcome you back to the podcast, Rachel Coops. It's so lovely to see you again. It's so great to be back and it's so good to be having another conversation with you. So It's quite a few years ago now, right? It is. I think we chatted on the first season, which is like five years ago. Yeah. Yeah. What's changed? You have a couple more kids. Yes. Yes, I do. (laughs) (laughs) Many more grey hairs, many more wrinkles, hardly any tolerance left. (laughs) And your, your other baby, your book. Yes, that's right. Another Affirm Press baby that you know all about, which is a big, big change. But, you know, I think when we chatted back in season one, I don't think there was even really Zoom. This is pre-pandemic when I think we were using like a non-video recording program and that was kind of the norm back then. And now Zoom is everything. Yeah, look at yeah. this. I know. The world's new professionals with this love-hate <laughs> relationship with it. <laughs> That's it. <laughs> now, I, of course, knew who you were long before we chatted because anyone who has had kids in the last how many years? 13 now. 13 years would know you, obviously, from play school. And you're such a ray of light on that show and always the favourite. And so I definitely knew you there, but I've, you know, come to know you now as a writer, an author. You have two amazing books. Your first book, Find Your Strength, which was brilliant, but completely different to your new book, Paris for Beginners, which is much more a memoir. I mean, there's bits of memoir in the first book, but Mm. it's more kind of a personal development style book. And then Paris for Beginners is all about your incredible satin return year in Paris and before and after and so much like exploration, so many highs and lows. And I can't wait to kind of unpack some of that with you. Yeah, I can't wait to unpack it with you because I know that there's, you know, for both of us, we have a similarity of kind of looking back. Mm -hmm. I think when you are curious about life and the choices we make and where we're at now, where we were then, and looking at the, I guess, the, the little breadcrumbs, like how you end up there. Yeah. And I know that you're, a curi- you're curious by nature as well. And you're also curious about always growing and honoring the challenges that, you know, come into our lives and that we can learn and grow from or become quite angry and bitter and lost. So it's that eternal dance, right? Yes. <laughs> A hundred percent. And it's so interesting because, you know, we were chatting before we started recording about some of my current frustrations with life, family life. And, you know, when you're in these moments, like these hard moments, it's 
always so difficult to see how this can become something we learn from later on. And these tough moments will become those breadcrumbs that we look back on in five years and 10 years and think, oh, well, I went through that and this is what came of it. This is where I'm at now. I can see why putting those hard yards in and going through that pain or distress or whatever it was has led me to this space that I'm in now. And God willing, we have long lives. So there's all of that reflective stuff to do for the rest of our lives. But I guess for you, you know, you kind of had this huge, huge adventure. You know, you'd kind of like fallen in love with your best friend and decided to just kind of get on a plane and go to one of the toughest performance schools in the world, which absolutely sounded terrifying to me. (laughs) (laughs) And I've done a bit of that myself. You know, I did a musical theatre program here in Melbourne at the National Theatre. And just even that, there are some things that you have to do when you're performing, which is about becoming really vulnerable and letting go of how you think other people see you. And I don't think I was able to really ever do that well enough to be a really great actor. That was not my, (laughs) that was not my path. I could never really let go, be a tree. Okay. But I'm really conscious of how everyone in the room is watching me be a tree instead of just being the tree. And And it's it's not for everyone, right? It's not for everyone. Not everyone has the kind of brain and needs to pretend to be a tree. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. It's not everyone's path. Yeah. And that's that's okay. And I think that but the what I love that the that you identified was that idea of that it's really the journey with vulnerability Mm. that resonates for me as well. That journey is lifelong journey of vulnerability. And yes, the stage gives you access to that in so many ways Mm. and reveals those parts of you that need to be looked at in order to be really free and really non-attached to what people think. Because as soon as you are worried about what other people are thinking, you're out of the present moment, you're out Mm. of the experience, and then it's impossible to do something magic on stage. Mm. When you're, you're, you know, concerned about what everyone is making of it or if they like it or not. Of course, the relationship with the audience, having said that, and I'm sure you're conscious of this as well with what you do with work on the podcast. And as a writer as well, I always contemplate this. As much as it's a process of self-knowledge and looking at what do I need to work through? What, What has this experience revealed that shows me that I have more work to do? And at the same time, whether you are writing a book, whether you are in so many forms of art, it is a relationship with the audience, whether we want to admit that or not. And the theory that where I went to school at Philippe Gaulier's school was it's the most important relationship. Like you have to be sensitive to the audience. You have to understand. You have to know if they like you or not. So it's this dance between on one level, you can't control that. And there is absolutely nothing that you can do about how people perceive you on and off stage in life. (laughs) Yeah, but you do also have to create such sensitivity and depth and connection with your soul and show the audience that Mm. so that and I do think it's the same for things like the work that you do so that people connect because they're connecting to your authentic your authenticity and your vulnerability and your capacity to peel back layers and reveal but it's still a relationship it is mm-hmm. still a relationship and the, the your understanding of you know there's some actors who are really clever and know when I do this the audience feels something 
they feel ABC. And when I raise my hand in this particular way, there is a level of that. So that self-consciousness is not, well, am, am I a good actor? Am I am I really a tree? And, you know, Luke <laughs> used to say to us, if you think you're a tree, you need to go to the psychologue, the hospital. It's not, you know, if you think you're a tree, then we're in trouble. It's like, how can I be the most beautiful tree so that the audience looks at your tree and goes, oh, the moment the tree spread the leaves, everyone like, oh. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, totally. So it's it's believing in what you're doing, not necessarily believing in being the thing. Yeah. Yeah. But, I mean, how did 29-year-old Rachel Coops from Australia turn up every day to this guy who's so revered and so renowned but so harsh? At least that's how he, I mean, obviously with purpose. He wasn't just an asshole. You know, he was trying to mould you and teach you and guide you. But it sounds like it would have been at times like really scary. Did you feel like that or was it just exciting to be there every day? I always had the terror <laughs> in that room before I got up, okay. the adrenaline, the the fear. But I, nev- I never want to lose that anyway with anything I do. Like as soon as I'm not a little bit terrified of doing a project, it means I don't care. So I really fostered capacity to know this is because I'm getting more and more invested in getting up and trying to find something special, something worthy of theatre, as he would say, you know, worthy of people coming to see. And 29-year-old Rachel had arrived with a pretty good sense of who she was. You know, I did, as as you said, I had an amazing boyfriend. He was my best friend. I had a little Art Deco apartment in King's Cross and I lived with my best girlfriend who was also an actor and a pop star. I had been working as an actor for a decade Mm-hmm. and done a commerce degree and really had everything together. But I did have that, this deep restlessness mm-hmm. always. I've always had it. I still have it, like an eternal restlessness that I've made peace with. And I know it's just this hunger, this desire to stay curious and create and explore. But I didn't fully understand it then. And I thought I was not a real actor because I hadn't gone to drama school. Mm-hmm. I'd studied economics at Sydney University and so when I arrived that Rachel who was and we all are like created by my past curated by my family and friends and experiences and had a pretty good idea of where my strengths were as an actor you know I knew I could be funny I knew I could be really strong and then all of those ideas just got totally eradicated because you know, Philippe's, Philippe says a lot, when you get on stage, all we see is your idea. We see is his shitty idea. And as soon as we see your shitty idea, that's all we see. And so the process with him, although, yeah, every time I went to get up was, and the first few times, it's really shocking because you, when you can go home to a life, like, what am I doing here? <laughs> am I really up for this? Am I really up for going back to the beginning again? You know, it's called Paris for Beginners for so many reasons, but it was like starting, beginning everything all over again when you're pretty much a fully formed adult and you're about to settle down into adult life. And yeah, it was not, it was not easy, but it was necessary for me 
because I just didn't believe that I was a real actor. I didn't believe that I, and I also wanted to really see how far I could go. And I knew that Philippe created moments of such elevation, like the the moments that I'd seen where people were special. It also got me up again and again and again, because you'd see it in other people who were stuck and struggling and and then they'd have this breakthrough and it was so beautiful to watch. And the, I still remember there's moments on stage with that crew that I was together with for two years, a lot of them. The book's about the first year, obviously, but I went back for more because I'm a sucker for punishment. <laughs> but two years of watching those moments and so many of them are just like ingrained in my memory as these spectacular glimpses into magic it, it that comes across in the book you know those moments and you described seeing that in your friend l you know towards the end of the book talking about that tra- transformation in her and you know like you can see it what that experience was like for all of you bringing those moments to light so you've got that all going in the background which is a huge undertaking to be putting yourself back to zero like breaking yourself down to build yourself up again and then you are so vulnerable about every other part of your life too you know you talk about your family life and your relationship with your dad you talk about this relationship with Patrick and the highs and the lows of that and the really kind of sad ending of that and then again like boom here's single Rach having like the time of her life and I've had one of those kind of moments in time in Paris where there's you suddenly, you know, completely alive and there's a lot of very interesting people to meet. And, you know, there's just so much that was going on for you personally at the time when you were having to really kind of go so much into yourself as well. And on top of that, you also go back to Paris in like current day to retrace your footsteps and make these reflections and relive some of the maybe not the same magic, but go back to all the same places and kind of remember Paris as it was for you back then. So there's like so many layers to this book. What was it actually like going back in real time while you're digging into your memory chest and unearthing all of these pieces again? Yeah, that that was never intended to be part of the book. I had this, I've always had this idea to write about my year in Paris with, well, my the first year in Paris. Yeah. And, you know, love affair with Paris and with Gaulier and with myself ultimately. And what, like, what are you willing to give up to really get to know yourself? And I think so many people have had that experience of a particular place where at a particular time in your life and you go and like the first module in Philippe's course is leisure. You learn to play, you learn to be playful. And then the second is a neutral mask, which is you put on a neutral mask to forget your name, your country, where you're from, who you were. And so that we can see this clean slate on stage so you can become anything. Mm. And that really, that's what happened for me back then is I got to become a a new me. And and I think a lot of people have had that experience when we're young. The thing is, we don't realize it Mm. when it's happening. We don't realize it in the (laughs) moment. And it happens for a lot of us on a gap year, or if you move to uni in a different city, or you don't realize what's actually happening. When I went back and it was really to 
have a bit of a, an exploration of, well, what is Paris the same way I remember it and to reconnect with it. And as soon as I landed, it was like that part of me that comes alive in that city, it is still exactly the same as the first time I went there when I was 18 years of age. Like it is still exactly the same. It's like I plug into this Rachel and I feel alive. I feel like this version of myself that doesn't exist anywhere else. And that was the benefit of going back now when I arrived and Paris has changed and I've changed and I could appreciate so many things that, although I loved it back then, sitting down and having a coffee in the Marais or at Cheprun, my favourite cafe down at the canal. I loved it. It was part of my life. It was my day-to-day life. It was my first trip without my child. Mm. You know, single parenting for 10 years, my first trip back to this place that formed me and allowed me to be no one's version of Rachel for the first time and to plug straight into her. And it was like, oh my God, there I am. I feel like I'd just forgotten her and I'd lost her. And that keeps happening to us in life. That's as we get older, parenthood does it. I think relationships do it. We get lost in relationships, lost in our work. And I feel so grateful to have that place that um, it's a shame that it's, you know, (laughs) takes a certain amount of privilege and money and time and energy to go there. It would be better if it was like the the harbour. That's right. The harbour and feel the same way. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) But I don't. I've never felt that connection to Sydney. You know, I was born in Werribee in Victoria, grew up on a military base, ended up in Sydney from five, been here my whole life. I don't have that connection to Sydney that I have in Paris. And so the the woman in her 40s that doesn't look the same physically, isn't the same emotionally or mentally, because I'm not. I've been through a journey like all of us have. And her landing appreciating all the things, the the expansiveness of time. You know, I made sure that I was by myself in the mornings until two, three in the afternoon. And one of my best girlfriends came over, but I would only see her in the the afternoons and the evenings because I knew this time is so precious to re-meet myself. Mm. And in that process, it was when I got back, I called Kelly, my publisher, and I said, I don't know what this book is about anymore because I can't take present Rachel out of it. She is so present. (laughs) And I don't know what it is anymore. She's ruined it. So I just sit with it for a while. Like she ruined my my the version of Paris that I had, right? I just sit with it for a while and figure out what I really wanted to write about. And it's so interesting how the book, that voice, me now is so present in it It, because, and I don't think it would have, the process of writing for me is always this kind of journey into my soul, whether it is when I, when I used to write plays as well as a playwright for a decade before I, and and television writer. And And the process of playwriting is the same, even though I'm delving into the lives of other people, even though I'm looking at, I love research heavy projects, looking at a community and unpacking history and its effects on the present. Ironically, that's what the book was as well. But a lot of the past work I did was that, right? Decision choices that we make in the past that affect the present. And even then, it's this incredible journey through the soul. And in that process, and by the way, no one should ever do any artistic practice or process, especially write a book, unless you like that process, because Mm. it is no joke. It is such a... It's so much bigger than anyone anticipates. Mm -hmm. And you will 
space blocks within yourself that you can't even imagine. So that process itself was really amazing for me to recognize that. And the present me, it's like, you can't go back in time. You can't go back into the past, but what you can do is reconnect to a part of yourself that is always there and that maybe relationships and life can, you know, harden and put an armor around. And it was like going back there made me go, no, just that ability to to see anything can happen. Like anything can happen. Your life can change tomorrow. Mm-hmm. And the gift of that, of, of remembering her and going, hey, it's not over. Yeah, you're in your 40s and you're in this stage of parenting and busyness, but we're just beginning. Mm-hmm. Life is just beginning for us. Yeah, And it's the same for you. I know you, you'd be feeling it in that battlefield of three small children yeah. and holding together a marriage and having a creative life as well. It's hard, but we're just beginning. It's like the yeah. like the... 29-year-old Yana. Yes. That part of you that's still there. Yeah. That is hopeful and makes more mistakes. Yes. <laughs> Lots of them. <laughs> Lots of mistakes. Yeah. I We're going to make that. more mistakes, you and I. Yeah. Back then, I guess the repercussions, they were big, but yeah. and as you get older, we mess up and we make mistakes and they feel oh, so much heavier. Yeah. It's so true. Way back in season one, when Yana Firestone caught up with Rachel Coops, they were both chatting about being women coming into their power in their 40s. We continue that next. This episode of the Curious Life podcast is brought to you by the sneaky treat company Melbourne, decadent sweet treats delivered to your door. Let your friends, family or clients know that you're thinking of them with a box of goodies and a personalised note to send along with your gift. TheSneakyTreatCo.com, you know you want to. I don't know if you remember, but when we chatted five years ago, you said to me, I think women really come into their power in their 40s. You know, that really stayed with me because I wasn't in my 40s then, I am now. And I remember looking forward to this decade and I still kind of have that hope. I'm only just, I'm 41, but I I feel like this is the decade, like the good stuff's going to happen. Like I should know myself And I think I do know myself better, way better than I ever have before. I'm much better with boundaries. I'm much better about saying, nah, not interested in that. Instead of people pleaser me that would just yes and nod my way through everything and be the last person to leave because you don't want to hurt that person's feelings or like be rude, even though all you want to do is go home and go to bed and wasting so much energy on things that don't matter. So I'm like really hoping that 40s me is exactly what you're saying like reaching back into 29 year old me pulling out all of that freedom and that curiosity and vulnerability and you know fearlessness yes the thing is in your 40s you have we have been through the ringer it's very rare to find a human a woman in her 40s who has not experienced some degree of challenge Mm. and so all the tricks that we've tried our whole life 
to make sure that we are controlling the world the way we want to control it or minimizing our fears around lack of control. They are generally put to the test and then we lose our superpowers. Mm -hmm. At some point they fail. So if you have been really good, like you and I have been a people pleaser your whole life, then you will be given a whole bunch of le lessons that are like, oh, I'm just going to show you what it's like when people really don't like you no matter what you do. And then it'll free you from mm. that process and that pattern for you, which is holding you back. But here's the thing. <laughs> <laughs> There's always a but. It never goes away. It never goes away. Yeah. Right. The people pleaser in, my, in me never goes away. The good girl, the nice girl. And there's nothing wrong with that, by the way. Wanting to, having a genuine desire to be kind as your primary principle. I think I said this to you five years ago when I get confused about how to teach Gabe. I'm like, what's the most important thing? And he'll go, oh, to be kind. And I'm like, yeah. <laughs> then you also have to, of course, be honest and strong and resilient. And But primarily, my primary ethic is to be kind. And I don't ever want that to go away. And I don't want life to have hardened me to the point where, because that's the that's the shadow side of really genuinely wanting to do good in this world and just be ethical and authentic and kind and love the people around you. And, you know, one of my mantras is always like, what would love do? I don't always do what love would do. Sometimes I get triggered and I'm like, I know what love would do, but in this moment, <laughs> I'm going to... Yeah. I'm gonna put a bob in it, right? Yeah. But not as not as much as I did, not as much as 29 a nine-year-old Rachel did. I'm way more conscious of that now. And I'm like, and I'll communicate it. I'll say to someone, like, I'm fit, I know I'm being triggered, but I'm being really triggered in this moment. Can you get curious with me about what is under that? But when we there's nothing wrong with being a decent person in this world, but people pleasing is something else. And it's insidious, it's the shadow mm -hmm. side of it. So we will get that lesson again and again and again and again. And we have to be okay with, as you say, setting boundaries, walking away from energy vampires, I call them, people who, who drain you or who leave you feeling worse than when you were with them in the first places, yeah. people things that is. We have to be okay with losing because we're setting a boundary. It's really hard. Mm. But if we know deep down that we have done everything we can. It's, we're not being triggered. It's not coming from our, our patterning. And in fact, a boundary does have to be set or we have to walk away from something or whatever it is. Then how do you do that without hardening and putting in a new wall up? That's my big challenge is because I want to stay soft and loving. And a girlfriend of mine, Gemma, who was in Paris with me, she said to me recently, oh, I just love that you're still a romantic. And I was like, am I? You know, I just sort of, <laughs> Am I romantic? She's like, yeah, you always have been. You've always believed in love. You've always believed in. And I'm like, yeah, and I still do. You know, I still do, despite it all. And the people pleaser will never go away. Mm. But I also hope that she keeps learning that it's okay to disappoint people if it means not disappointing herself all the time. It reminds me of something you said in the book towards the end. And I'm just trying to remember if this is something you said in present time to your wifey or if it was earlier, but I think it was in present time where you said, I learned that I had to let go of my soulmate to find myself. You know, yeah. I mean, what an enormous lesson. And most people would never be brave enough to take that risk 
and do that discovery. And I guess that kind of fits with what you're saying that, you know, sometimes we have to kind of do these hard things for the greater good of ourselves and for the the learning and the discovery, because it's like unlocking the next chapter and the next level in gaming terms. It's like getting to the next level and discovering more about who you are, where you're going, what you're going to be and who you want to be, you know, but that idea in itself of letting go of, and although you did say in the book, you didn't, you weren't sure at the time that he was your soulmate, but it's doing all of this work on looking inwards and reflecting on where you've been that gave you that kind of epiphany. I mean, what was that like coming to that? Yeah, I I think we often hold on to what we know because the unknown is so much scarier. And I also think it's really hard to stay connected to yourself and to grow without a period in your life of proper solo self-reflection. I also think that you, the the only way we really learn and grow is through intimate relationships. Mm. (laughs) (laughs) So there's also that. Yeah. And and it's a contradiction. It's a contradiction that we, we have to give up something, have to give up something. And, And I do believe this is the universal law. You have to give up something to get something that you want. And getting really clear about what it is that's important to you and what you want. And if it is that I really want to understand who I am before I go into a relationship, before I go into that big love, I really want to know with clarity and confidence. Because once we start to do that dance with a person, it doesn't matter how well-matched you are. It doesn't matter how well you communicate. It doesn't matter how much you love each other Mm -hmm. either, right? Isn't that, there's all of us have had that experience where you can love someone deeply, but it's going, the roads are going to get rocky. And then intimate relationships are going to teach us a lot about Mm. what we are. So it's not that I think you have to give up your soulmate, but for me at that moment in time with where I was at and who I needed to become through that process, it wasn't going to be possible Mm. staying with the person that knew me back home and staying with the person that was also going through their own process of self-discovery, actually. But I don't know, I look back and even having written that line and having said that line that I realized I had to give up my soulmate to find myself. There's no way of knowing if that person was my soulmate, really. Mm. For me, it was more that acknowledgement of someone who was so important in my life, maybe one of many soulmates. I could not stay in that dance. And you're right, I didn't know at the time that you don't get many loves like that. Because when we're young, we don't know that. We think there's loads more. Yeah. <laughs> there's going to be loads of soulmates. Yeah. Not loads. Just flying around. Yeah. (laughs) But I do think, you know, when you reflecting back and looking at that and going, it was such a beautiful, special dance to have done with that person. But the dance that I did with myself that I could never have done with anyone else while I was in Paris was probably the most important one that I've done in my life. Yeah. Really. To have that time to make so many mistakes without everyone who you know watching on yeah, and to kind of play with versions of yourself and to be under the the tutelage of the world's most infamous theatre teacher and the brutality of day after day getting up to try to find your soul because he would Mm. say, Philippe would say that your only job as an actor is to show your soul. It's your only job. So to get up day after day to try and find my soul so I can show it only to be told, sit down again and again and again because that's what he would do you would get up 
and then he would bang his drum if you were boring and you had to sit. Mm. And if he didn't say anything, you knew you were really, really bad. If he said, oh, my God, Rachel, oh, so, so bad, this uh, not even performance artist for uh, Adelaide, this, uh, like, uh, Randall Mall, uh, South <laughs> Australia, not Opera House, you know. Yeah, to have that, that possibility of going, <clears throat> stripping back, stripping back, stripping back, stripping back. I couldn't have done it with anyone else, but I didn't know that. I didn't know that till reflecting back. And I also didn't know that you don't get loads of other loves like that. But life is long <laughs> and maybe you do. You're not at the end yet. You could have a whole bunch more soulmates coming your way in the next for the next 50 years, you know? Like we don't know. As you said earlier, you can't go back and reach into the version of yourself that you were back then. You're just not, we're not those people anymore. It's like anything in life, going through grief or going through any kind of challenging experience, we're just changed forever by those experiences. We'll never be the same person again. So trying to reconcile who we were before with who we are now can be really difficult. But, you know, you probably wouldn't go back and cancel out all of that Rachel exploration to stay with the guy because that wasn't the journey for you that was leading you to this special time that was just for you to transform you and not the relationship it's funny how many people though both men and women have said to me oh I had a Patrick like I had that person who I loved so deeply we were best friends but that at the time I I needed to go on this journey myself and you know some people like oh I regret it and some people say no it was like you I look back and I realize I had to I had to have that time by myself Mm. but we don't know like I said before you don't know that you're going through these processes when you're going through them unless it is something like grief and you're really faced with grief breakups you know, the big things that kind of hit us like a bus yeah. and wake us up. Yeah. They, they're much, they're, it's much more possible to go, I know what process I'm in and I'm just going to be in it and I can't control it. But when you're in those little transformation times of life, those smaller, and really life is also, I believe, like hundreds of little griefs. Mm. We have to constantly grieve and let go of versions of ourselves and what didn't happen. And like I said before, we make mistakes and we have to forgive ourselves and we have to then make amends for where we made mistakes and move on. But that feeling of, and something you said before too, that fear of the unknown, you know, trusting the process of, oh, I have to go through this another, yet another layer of self-discovery or I'm grieving another part of my life trusting the unknown and trusting that we don't know what is ahead of us like you said there could be hundreds of soulmates just floating around (laughs) waiting to fly into my window that's right right. (laughs) but trusting in the unknown faith is such a big part of my life and again I struggle with it so badly but shraddha it is in Sanskrit faith like just having faith and trust yeah. that if I do just let this part of myself go, if I do just let this person, place, thing, the things get, that get taken away from us or that mm-hmm. fall apart, it's a radical awakening every time. And like my teacher Manorama used to say, it was one of the first things she ever said when I sat with her, I don't know, 15 years longer ago now. She said, talking about grieving her mother, watching her mum leaving her body over a long, slow process. She kept asking, what can I learn from this? I could learn in no other way. And it's been such a great mantra for me to have in my life because it means you don't have to 
there's no room for regret in that. There's no room for regret. There's no room for me to look back and go, I wish I'd stayed in Paris. I wish I'd stayed with Patrick. I wish I'd, and of course there are times that I think that. There's only room for what did I learn from that, that process? I could have learned in no other way. And then I can do that every time life pulls the rug out from underneath me, which it keeps on doing and it keeps on doing for all of us. That's exactly it. Like we, <laughs> there's no escaping it. It's the one guarantee that life will continue to change. We will continue to be hit with all of these unexpected changes. And just when you think you've got your shit together, it falls apart. And you think, oh, great, there I was getting a bit too comfortable. Okay, here I go back to the learning again. But accepting those things when we're in the middle of those painful experiences can be a little bit easier said than done. But it's helpful to remember that there is always the other side. We do always get to the other side of this transformational experience. And there's always something to be learned, but it's hard to see it sometimes when you're in it. And that's where I think the faith piece has to come in. And it doesn't mean you push the feelings away. It just means I'm just going to keep trusting that this process, as hard as it is, whatever it is that we're going through, is ultimately, (laughs) it's like this, when you make freshly baked cookies, Mm -hmm. the first time you do it, and I'm not a baker, so it's always hard work for me to cook. I don't love it. I just don't love it. But every time I do it and you taste your warm, freshly baked cookies, you're like, oh, why don't I do this all the time? And I think that's what faith is for me. It's like trusting that if I just keep doing the work, if I stay present to what it is that I am facing and what it is that I'm doing and face it with as much grace as I can, it's not always graceful. And I'm not saying that my challenge is a huge compared to a lot of people. I recognize I live a very privileged life. My traumas are little T's compared to so many other people. And so it can, I'm not suggesting it is easy or that it is going to make everything better for everyone. But I certainly think when we go through those little T's and those little grief G's in those processes, we can, it's the memory, like you said, of knowing that I don't know how, I don't know when, but somehow in my life, I've got to the other side every time. Not in, not the same Rachel, mm. but like, there's a lot of problems with the old Rachel <laughs> as well. Like, she had some, she had some things to be kind of, you know, baked out of her anyways. <laughs> So having that that trust and faith that I don't know how, I don't know when, but at the end of the process, yeah. I'm gonna have I'm gonna have those freshly baked cookies. And I don't know how long it's gonna take. And as we get older as well, I feel like we know better what we need. Mm. We know better what we need in those moments. So we do those things, we pull in our community, we have those people that we know life has taught us. You can you can trust those those humans. They're gonna be, they're gonna have your back yeah. in those moments. And so, you know, for example, for me, when I am going through something and I feel a bit lost or I'm feeling like I'm grieving, I know jump in the ocean, yoga practice, meditation, and then generally... I realize that I'm not, I don't have a big project because when I have a big project on, if I'm writing a book, if I'm writing a play, if I've got a big month long, you know, emceeing for FIFA for the month, the Women's World Cup, which was so incredible. I don't have time to think about anything else. Yeah. <laughs> like, 
yeah. don't have time to process. Yeah. And so knowing all those things to do for yourself and having your army of people that you pull in, I think that gets more part of our makeup as we get older. We're better at, at connecting and plugging into those things straight away. Yeah. So it makes the process more easeful. Yes, so true. Like 29-year-old me, 29-year-old you, I'm sure had no clue what we were doing. We would just booze through it and, you know, do all the things that are not particularly good for us just to kind of distract and get through another day, which serves a purpose to a point when you're young. But, you know, now we know the things that work and what's going to help us feel more grounded and connected to ourselves. But, you know, that faith concept is so interesting to me because as you were talking, I remembered like I had a really long period of being single right at that time in my late 20s or mid mid 20s to like early 30s when all my friends were getting married. And I was just like forever having these like Tinder terrible <laughs> situations that just went nowhere, you know, and I was like fighting against it and, and, and starting to get really like desperately sad about it and thinking this is just never going to happen for me and what's wrong with me and all of that. And then something just changed where I just sort of like believed that it was going to happen. And I was just like, you know what? I am going to have a family. I am going to find the guy. It's all good. And I literally was able to just kind of let go. I stopped struggling against it and just believed that it was going to happen. And it very quickly after that happened, you know, it sounds like magic and it's not always going to solve the big T's and G's for sure. But, you know, that was like after eight years of feeling like I'm treading water to all of a sudden, I just felt completely like, of course, I still yearned and I still wanted it. And I was still going to the psychics and I was still getting crystals and putting like rose quartz in my bra and like doing all the things. But like, I believed it. And I just knew like, it's okay, it's going to happen. And that just seemed to open up the next chapter for me. Yeah. And I think the the beauty of that is that we don't know we don't know what is next. You and I don't know what's going to happen when we get off this conversation. And it's equally terrifying and liberating because anything is possible mm-hmm. and it's learning to trust that. And yeah. at the same time, I would, would, would have said to you the next layer is that had you let go of also the idea that you have to have a family, because what happens if you if you couldn't? Yeah, well, I, that was so important to me. I didn't care about the wedding the, you know, I never like had all of those dreams, but I always wanted a family. So it was like, I almost said to myself, well, that's it. I'm going to have a baby. I'll do it by myself. Don't care. It's going to happen that I don't have to like, you know, meet the man and make it happen. That would be great. But regardless, if I'm still single in a couple of years, I'll just have a baby myself. I don't care. And it was like, okay, great. Well, I know what I want. I'm following what I want rather than putting my hopes and and dreams into somebody else, you know? Mm. And the thing is that we we can't control, we all are under the illusion that we're controlling our lives. Yes, (laughs) totally. I know, so ridiculous. (laughs) And of course, and then people are like, oh, what? So should I just, you know, not want anything? And I'm like, no, we, we want, wanting things is good and getting really clear about how you want to spend the precious moments of your lifetime, who with and doing what. Man, if you don't sort that out, you're going to end up drained and exhausted all the time and wondering why you have this eternal sadness. Of course, we put our time and energy into the people and things that we want. And we work really hard with clarity and power, like with all of our strength to put our energy into that. 
Mm. But here's the tricky thing is we're, if that if we think we can control that, then we're going to be in trouble because you can't make someone love you. You can't make something that you're writing a success. Mm-hmm. You can't make yourself happy even. <laughs> like <laughs> all the things, all the little things that make us happy momentarily, they're all temporary. That is intentional to show us, to teach us. Well, firstly, often we get the thing and then we're still like, oh, I've got the thing, I've got the husband, I've got the kids and now I'm miserable. Or alternatively, we don't get the thing and then life is over. Yeah. And so working with non-attachment on some level as well is really important and fundamental yeah. in our trust in the unknown because, and the, th- the thing when we trust the unknown, it's like it means being okay with whatever is happening now to begin with. And that is really sucky when things are terrible. And it's also, I think, a little bit arrogant to go, yeah, your life's totally fallen apart. Just be okay with that. Yeah. You know, it's not about dismissing the experience, but it's certainly about, and when, you know, like you say, embracing change, embracing the experience from the perspective that the unknown may be providing me with what I want. The unknown may be providing me with what I don't want in the future, but what I am going to trust is that I'm going through whatever process I need to become who I am meant to be. Yes. To become a better version of myself. And that's kind of what I was talking about before, where I don't want life to harden me because mm-hmm. that people please a part, the shadow part of that is also that I do believe in genuine kindness and I do yes. believe in unconditional love and true joy that is not connected to results and outcomes. Yeah. Do trust in the process of you know, writing the book and not knowing if anyone's going to read it. And at the same time, we do have to do all of that and know that, well, what is at my fingertips? What can I control? Mm-hmm. Like, What are the little things that I can put in place to, ma- to help me get through this process of change or to help me enjoy my life more? Yes. Like how do you, in the chaos of three kids, the noise and the juggling and the trying to also be a creative, how do you every day wake up and... Embrace that. Thanks for listening. We would love it if you left us a rating for this episode. And catch up with Yana for more inspiration and info on how to get to the stories that tap into your passion on Instagram and Facebook at The Curious Life Podcast. And if you're looking for a fabulous podcast editor or producer, use ours. Julie Reynolds will turn your audio lemons into audio lemonade. Check out audiolemonade.com.au.